Welcome to the Radical Lifestyle Podcast, where you will be inspired by the past, equipped for the present, and prepared for the future, as we engage in conversations with people from around the world. I want to welcome back Charlotte. You're actually our first uh, repeat, so... You know, of course, for celebration, I guess. I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> um, for those that haven't heard the previous podcast that we did with you, uh, can you just briefly again just say who you are and what you do? Briefly, yes. <laughs> if you want the extended version, you could uh, listen to the first part of the first podcast. That's right. I'm Charlotte Korchak. I am the Senior Educator and Director of International Student Programs for a international education nonprofit called Stand With Us. I was born and raised in Los Angeles. I am an American Israeli. I lived in Los Angeles until I was nine. I moved to Israel when I was nine years old, lived here for five years, moved back to the US for another 10 years, and have been living back in Israel for the last seven years. So I am a, very much an American Israeli, I'm living now in Israel, and predominantly my job is to educate people around the world about Israel, about the conflict, about Zionism, and how to effectively communicate about Israel around the world and about Israel and the Palestinians and what's going on here. Well, and I would say that we have learned so much from you. You've been tremendous help to us. And I can honestly say that our lives wouldn't be the same if we hadn't met you and met Stan with us. That They are pivotal in all that we do and we always recommend to people. So I would say look them up. There's there probably people can find a Stan with us somewhere in their locality, in their nation or... Yeah, we have offices throughout the United States. That's where, of course, the organization was founded. It was founded in Los Angeles. We have offices throughout the U.S., in New York, in Florida, in you know Chicago. I mean, the list goes on and on. So if you're in the U.S., you could really find one uh, near you. If you are in the U.K., we have an office in the U.K. We have an office in the Netherlands. Um, we have, and then we, but regardless of whether we have a physical office or not, we obviously communicate throughout the world through social media and through other avenues. But if you do live in any of those locales or you can you know, check stand with us online and see if there is an office in your location. But internationally, we only have offices in the UK, the Netherlands, Canada, and Brazil. Um, but we do work throughout the world, Australia, South Africa, uh, throughout South America from these offices. That's, and then our international office is obviously based in Israel. Well, one of the things that people say is how can we find out the truth because the, you, you cannot rely on the news on the media for the truth and i always say to people well find somewhere that will speak truth that you can go back to that you can find out because if you don't have those markers you're going to be blown everywhere and stand with us is one that we say go to go and watch them go sign up to the website etc and you will hear truth so we're grateful for that Definitely. I mean, we're an organization that prides ourselves on being an education organization. We put out fact-based information. We try to present when talking about a specific issue, both sides of the issue. You know, what, what would the pro side say? What would the con side say? Um, and then I think if you want to dive much deeper, I will say Stand With Us is great at kind of consolidating information into short bursts so that you don't have to then go and invest a ton of time reading, you know, a ton of books. But I will say, if you do want to dive even deeper, peer-reviewed books and, and journal articles are probably the best source of information. Um, that's where we get our information to then disseminate. Again, we just take it and we shorten it and we make it into bullet points and into these very easy booklets that you can then read very quickly because we don't all have time to become experts. Exactly. So, yeah. so. And that's, that's the good thing about you is that you do that for people. Often people go, I want to know about the subject, but if they see a book 
a thousand pages thick and they're like, forget that. I'm not even going to start with this. So you're a really good entry point into finding out pieces of information and then people can, if something catches hold of them, they can then dive deeper into, you know, these chunks of material. Yeah, I will. I'll plug this as well. I have started to do now because of the COVID situation and my, the more time that I now have, because obviously I'm not traveling, I'm doing everything from home. I just launched a program um, on a crash course, basically crash courses on Israeli history or on activism or on the terror, the disputed territories where you could actually sign up or you could reach out and, and request a crash course where you'll get a four session, one hour long session crash course on one of these topics. So I'm launching that just now. So if anyone is interested in wanting a crash course, they can reach out to stand with us. Yeah. And we'll put the, um, the information, We'll put a website link in the description for people that are interested in, in finding out. Great. Um, so we we recorded with you uh, a couple of weeks ago, and the world has has changed again in in two weeks. Um, uh, yeah, dramatically. And uh, so so the the big thing happening today, uh, two weeks ago, it was coronavirus. Now it's it's the fight against racism, and it it. You you could say there were murmurings during the coronavirus of talks of protests about that situation. Then you had George Floyd killed uh, from brutality, and that with the murmurings of of protests before that sparked probably what we now have going on, which started with peaceful protests, now riots and all that kind of stuff. So. You know, as a as an organization, and you guys have been fighting anti-Semitism for for years. Um, can you explain to people uh, what you see as you know what are the similarities uh, between fighting racism, fighting anti-Semitism? What's the differences? Um, but also, how have these um, protests affected the Jewish communities? Does it affect them? All that. Okay. A lot. So let's take it one at a time. First of all, I will say Stand With Us immediately put out a statement about George Floyd condemning what what took place, condemning the murder of George Floyd. And yes, I'm going to call it a murder. Um, The four police officers are being charged. The the main individual is being charged with second degree murder. Um, And we immediately put out a statement condemning that. Regardless of where you stand on anything, I think we can all stand against a innocent person regardless of innocent i'm saying innocent because even if he did you know give over a fake 20 dollars bill like you're not guilty of something that is then going to warrant what happened to him yeah it even, was just, even if he committed some heinous crime it still doesn't even if he he killed right somebody justice in the streets exactly even yeah. if he had killed somebody like and, and people who are bringing up his like criminal past it doesn't matter we live in a country of rule of law if you do something you then have the right to a trial by jury no one individual is allowed to become, you know, jury, judge, and executioner. It's just, it doesn't, it should not matter. And so that was something that I think was easy to condemn and something that everyone should have condemned. It exploded. Now you said, you know, we've now shifted to this anti-racism thing. It's sad that we have to talk about that because we should never stop being anti-racism. We should never stop being vocal against these different forms of discrimination and of bigotry. The the converse 
let's get to really quickly just the rioting and the looting and everything else. You know, these were peaceful protesters and then mixed in, you had people who really took advantage of the situation to go out and loot, to go out and riot. And many of the peaceful protesters were against this, were shouting and saying, you know, this is not what we stand for. This is not who we are. We are trying to actually make real change. How I think Corona actually played a big role in this is people were getting so just frustrated of being at home and being in quarantine and the anxiety was building up and the anger was building up. And then something like this just was like the spark that ignited, you know, all of that tension. I mean, this isn't the first time, it won't be the last time, but what we do see, I think is a positive shift is that, you know, four years ago probably is when this all really began when Black Lives Matter was founded after what happened in Ferguson. And they're way more organized now. So we could see actually positive shifts. Now, when I say, now that kind of segues into talking about the fight against racism versus the fight against other forms of discrimination. There is, we, we spoke about this, I think a little last time, but and actually we didn't about, you know, the intersectional way in which movements have come together and, and have really talked about kind of, well, we're all fighting against discrimination, so why don't we fight together, right? That's been a beautiful message coming out of the progressive movement in the United States to a certain extent, right? And what I mean by that is you have the Women's March joining up with Black Lives Matter, joining up with you know the indigenous rights movements, joining up with the Latino fight, joining up with the LGBTQ fight, and really all of them coming together to support each other. And that's a beautiful thing. That's what we should be doing because again, regardless of the type of discrimination, it's all discrimination and it needs to be stopped. The reality is, is that we, are, we need to see people as equal and we should not be judging people by the color of their skin, their sexual orientation, their gender. We should be judging people by the quality of their character. I, I think that's just the message that needs to go out to the world. That, sh that is, I think, the anti-discrimination uh, cry is judge people by the content of their character and not by something that one, you can't choose. I can't choose my gender. Well, okay, well, that's a whole nother conversation. But I can't choose my, my sexual orientation. Some would argue I can't choose my skin color, you know. So, and, and now I want to add in another piece to this. That's a beautiful thing. What's not beautiful about it is that for some reason, Jews have been excluded from that camp. And we see, unfortunately, when things like what's happening in the U.S. happen, we see people who are anti-Semitic or anti-Israel or both taking advantage of these movements and, and trying to bring not the Jewish conversation and not to say, well, we all also need to stand against anti-Semitism, but actually just the opposite, saying we need to stand in solidarity with the Palestinians, which then encourages anti-Semitism. Now, we've spoke about this last time. We do need to stand with the Palestinians, but we also need to stand with Israel. And then we need to look at anti-Semitism as an entirely different conversation and a different disease. It, you know, yes, that plays a slight role in the conflict, but global anti-Semitism is, is a different issue. Now, yes, the conflict has aided in anti-Semitism. It's increased anti-Semitism. But again, going back, the, the really sad reality is that for some reason, as a result of, of what's going on in Israel with the Palestinians, anti-Semitism is now ignored as another one of those forms of discrimination that we need to fight against. This has caused a major issue within the Jewish community over the last few weeks. Now let's add another piece to this, which I think is actually a, a somewhat of a confusion that goes on. You know, as within the Jewish community, people obviously support Israel usually, 
Um, and they are not experts on the issue. And so they'll see on social media something and they'll cling to it and they won't really do enough investigating. And what I'm specifically talking about is the amount of people who have spoken out in the last few weeks saying, you know what, I can't support Black Lives Matter because they have an anti-Israel platform. And so where is that coming from? Uh, so we as an organization, you know, we just, we obviously, when things like this happen and we start to see it blending into our sphere, which is, you know, Israel, anti-Semitism, the Jewish people, et cetera, we started to look into this. And what we actually found is that there's a few things that need to be mentioned. One is that there's actually two different organizations. There's Black Lives Matter, and then there's an organization called the Movement for Black Lives. Now, they're associated with each other, but the Movement for Black Lives is the actual organization that has a part of their platform that is very anti-Israel. And I'm not exaggerating. They bring up words like apartheid, that we're a genocidal country, that we're a racist country. It's bad. The Movement for Black Lives put out this platform, and four years ago, uh, it was endorsed by Black Lives Matter. Uh -huh. Now, I tend to look at this and say, okay, I'm not, that, does that mean that every single person who is supportive of, supportive of Black Lives Matter is therefore supportive of this one paragraph buried deep within the Movement for Black Lives' platform? No, <laughs> far from it, in fact. And I think what we really needed to do as a Jewish community was separate out those two things and say, listen, I could be someone who is against racism. I could be someone who believes that black people's lives matter just as much as everybody else's without supporting this platform. And it was very hard for a lot of people to make that separation. To, to, and and I, I would say, I think the key is, there's, sorry, I'm going to quote the West Wing. This just came to mind. And I love the West Wing. It's probably one of my favorite shows of all time and just brilliant writing and brilliant. And there was this back and forth going on between the deputy chief of staff and a, a member of Congress who was also gay, who was a Republican. And they, they're having this long conversation. And eventually he's like, how can you be a, a part of this party? How can you be a part of a party that is so against your sexual orientation that stand up on, you know, on the House floor or on the Senate floor and say horrible things about you? And he said, you know, well, I believe in all the other values, but more importantly, if I completely disconnect, then I can't make any change. And I want to make change from within. And, and again, I'm not just going to abandon the party because of this one thing. And so I kind of now I'm drawing this correlation where I'm like, I actually want to be a part of this because then I can instill in many of these supporters the necessary knowledge and education and show that this, that this paragraph within their platform is so incredibly misguided. And is being allies and being a part of it, it could actually make that change so much easier because we come at it and say, we are a part of this movement, but this is something that is discriminating against us. And, and is again, really misguided. So there's been, again, this has been the ongoing challenge within the community. And it's really divided the community to a certain extent. You have a lot of liberal Jews who are able to make that separation. And then you have a lot of others who said, well, I can't support this. I'm not gonna go out. And then you have the very conservative Jews who say, I com I just, I'm completely gonna disassociate because of the looting and because of the rioting. Not being able to, again, separate and say, you know, there's more than this. And I, the sad reality, and I am gonna call it out. When I saw Jews hashtagging all lives matter, I got very angry. And this is where I think 
we need to be more intersectional about how we think about the movements that we're part of and the fights that we are a part of. You know, as Jews, a year and a half ago, we suffered anti-Semitic rhetoric coming out of a member of, of Congress. Uh, I'll just, I'll call it out, I do not care. Elon Omar tweeted about, you know, saying something, it was, it's all about the Benjamins when referring to uh, the Jewish influence on, you know, the way that our government in America functions and things. And we, everyone called her out. It was, there was a call out saying, you know, this is unacceptable, this is anti-Semitic. And to the extent that the House was proposed a resolution that was there to condemn anti-Semitism. What ended up happening is Elon Omar and the rest of the squad and a few others got together and said, no, 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 why would we just pass a resolution against anti-Semitism? Let's pass a resolution against all forms of bigotry, you know, including Islamophobia and including, you know, racism. And what did we say? We said the exact same thing that black people are saying today, which is, of course, all forms of discrimination could be, should be condemned, right? But right now, the issue is anti-Semitism. So let's condemn anti-Semitism and single it out. And then if, if something happens, or even if something doesn't happen, if we want to propose another resolution going into Islamophobia, then let's do that as well. But right now, the issue is anti-Semitism. And to me, as I don't understand how the same Jews could then a year later, hashtag all lives matter. You're doing the exact same thing right now. Of course, all lives matter. Nobody's sitting there saying that they don't. But right now, black people are being killed. And we saw that. Again, I couldn't even watch the video. I, I can't, I can't bring myself to watch the video. I, I just, I can't do it. But it, to watch somebody die in front of your eyes and we understand that the color of his skin played such a huge role. Like, no, right now, all, right now, Black Lives Matter, right? Of course, all lives matter, but right now, Black Lives Matter. And so I got very frustrated by some within the Jewish community who really were not able to kind of see that intersectional um, connection. And, you know, when we fight anti-Semitism, we want to talk about anti-Semitism as, as, as it's on its own, because it is a, a, a specific form of discrimination. The same way that we should talk about racism, on its own, it's a specific form of discrimination, and we need to be able to unpack it and understand it. And it, as soon as we start to blur these things too much, each one then loses its strength. So there is a beauty in the intersection of we should all stand together against discrimination. That's beautiful. But then when talking about the individual forms of discrimination that we are facing, we need to pull, to separate that and, and to be able to explain each one on its own. And I think the biggest issue that we're seeing when it comes to Israel is because of that intersectionality, so many Americans look at Israel through that racist lens. They look at it through the lens of racism, through, well, just like our conflict in America is rooted in racism, this conflict is also rooted in racism. And that's where we start to see major problems because it's not. It, this conflict is, is way more complex than that. and so there's, we have to be able to make the separation and to not try to apply, you know, th this notion of, well, everything is rooted in racism to, you know, you just can't do that. And so there needs to be that separation. Um, I also would stress that I feel like there needs to be a separation between what goes on in Israel domestically versus us and the Palestinians. And we mentioned this last time as well, but you know, it, it really was strengthened for me over the last couple of weeks. I was talking to uh, one of my very close friends who's an Israeli Arab and, and who's also gay and I mean, he's, and he's very outspoken about Arabs in Israel and Arab rights in Israel. But he's also very clear that to make the point that 
you know, this isn't necessarily a conversation about the conflict with the Palestinians. This is about citizens of Israel who have full equal rights. But this is what he said to me. He said, do I identify with the lived experiences of, of black people in America? I do. In the sense that, you know, I could be walking down the street and I'm more likely to be stopped because, and, and just randomly, you know, checked for an ID because I look Arab. And that same thing happens to black people in America, right? We had stop and frisk where the vast majority of people who were stopped and frisked were black people simply because they were black. But then he stopped and he said, so I can identify with the day-to-day lived experiences. But as soon as I take a step back, I very much acknowledge that the context in which that is happening is very different. And he said that to me. He said, you know, in the United States, your country was founded with, unfortunately, racism built right in, right? In the Constitution, you guys declared that Black people were three-fifths of a man. That's in the Constitution. Sure, you corrected it later on, but still. He said, this, my country, Israel, was founded on clear-cut democratic and liberal values of equal rights for all of our citizens. So he says, while I can identify with the lived experiences, we then have to take a step back and realize that the contexts, though, do not match and that they do need to be spoken about separately. I'm going to stop talking now. <laughs> I, there was so much there that you asked about. I hope I covered most of it. Yeah, I think so. Um, As you were talking, various points came up. I was like, oh, I must say that. And now I can't remember what they were. But, <laughs> yeah, I'm um, sorry. Well, no, it's no. Good. Question it's good. by question next time. Asking yeah. me three questions in one is really dangerous. I, I was like, here, I'm going to throw those at you and just let you take over. <laughs> yeah, well, find out what happened. <laughs> uh, we, we talked... Um, with uh, a lady from Iowa, she's running for the House of Representatives there, uh, about this. She's black. Uh, she's a black black lady and um, getting her perspective. They had a huge victory in Iowa. I mean, if you're against racism, right? Steve King, a uh, famous you know, um, individual in Congress got lost his seat um, in the primary, uh, which was a really big deal. This guy's like a famous, I mean, from what I've heard, I don't know much, but from what I've heard, right. he's like, yeah, I saw I saw some reports about that. Again, I don't really know much about it. I was, I kept meaning to ask her about it, but um, but I never did actually. Um, but in that conversation, we she talked about Black Lives Matter, and um, we had to make a distinction of we we said you know we can support Black Lives Matter, meaning Black Lives Matter, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we support or condone what the Black Lives Matter. Movement, movement actually. in capital letters right yeah. black lives we support lowercase black lives matter not uppercase right. black lives matter. yeah well we actually put a statement out at the beginning of the podcast to say when we refer to this but i have been surprised how many people and i've kind of picked them up on social media saying do you realize and they just do not realize that 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 you must make a distinction and, and they don't even realize how dangerous the movement is so I keep trying to pick this up um, so you can get sucked in if you're not informed. In yeah, a lot of people don't have a clue about the um, what you're talking about before about um, some of the anti-Israel, anti-Jewish stances that are, are put out there, um, or, or pro-Palestinian, anti-Israel um, things that they're pushing. But uh, you're going to say something. Yeah. Well, so I read an article in the Jerusalem Post this morning because um, I check in on the Jerusalem Post most days as one of the newspapers I check in on. And um, it said about the fear level amongst the Jewish community, particularly in New York, etc., seeming to implicate, and I, I did, probably haven't read it in as, as much detail as I should, 
seem to implicate that all that this is going on at the minute and the unrest and the protests have created an additional level of fear within the Jewish communities, especially those who can be recognized as Jewish, the Orthodox, those that wear a kippah, etc. So can you explain why that would be when you could say, well, it's about black people and yet you've got the Jewish community in fear? So, well, first of all, we did see Jewish communities targeted during the riots. Um, one of the main Jewish communities in Los Angeles, which actually, it's funny you mentioned the visible Jews. That was the community that was attacked in Los Angeles. It was the community where the Jews are way more visibly Jewish, yeah. you know, where it's, and it's literally, I mean, it's across town from where I used to live in Los Angeles, where it's a more modern Orthodox community. And so other than the fact that a guy would be wearing a kippah, like the women, you really wouldn't know. Whereas on this other side of town, they're very visibly from head to toe Jewish. Anyway, so there, there you saw attacks against synagogues, against vandalism against synagogues. You saw attacks against Jewish-owned stores. Now, what, the question of why this is happening, I think, is, well, listen, yes, I can, I can very, I think, comfortably say that the vast majority of the people who were out protesting were not anti-Israel, anti-Semitic. And to be honest, we probably don't even like think about that. As, a, as an issue, right? Their issue is racism, their issue is black people, their issue is equality. Obviously they should think about it when it comes to equality, but that's another issue because they don't see that much inequality against Jews in the United States anymore because it's not really systematic. It's, you don't see it from within government institutions anymore. Obviously Jews can experience anti-Semitism on a peer-to-peer -peer level, uh, but significantly less from institutions. And so what I think is also, so the, the, but there are people within that movement who do obviously believe that Jews are part of the oppressor, that Jews are, you know, part of the capitalist, the evil capitalist, you know, um, makeup of the United States. And so they group us in as being part of the problem. And this is just classic anti-Semitism. It's just this time it's coming from the left rather than from the right. And, and, and again, they both attack us for different reasons and the left will attack us for being, you know, capitalist rather than, you know, more socialist. I think Ben Gurion, who's, you know, sitting right, his photo sitting right behind me would say, um, hi, he was like a hardcore socialist. So like, how about you don't like, you know, just like paint Jews with one broad stroke, you know, the same way that in the United States, there were a significant number of Jews who were marching in those rallies, right? Who were marching, peacefully protesting on behalf of black lives. But unfortunately, there is that rhetoric within that movement, again, sometimes because of the anti-Israel sentiment that you will find, um, but also because of just this anti-capitalist, anti-institution type of mentality. And the Jews are kind of brought into that because we are part of the, part of the institutions, right? I mean, Jews make up an overwhelming number of people who sit in Congress. There are three Jews who sit on the Supreme Court and we're less than 1% of the population in the United States. So they, I think there is a feeling that Jews are part of the establishment. And some of these people are, yeah, I'm for black lives, but they, I mean, you have Antifa, you had other people who joined who are very anti-institution and anti-establishment. And they, I think, group Jews in with that. And then you just have, again, people who are taking advantage of this. And if I'm an anti-Semite and I feel like I could go out to Williamsburg in Brooklyn or another and, and, and attack some Jews and get away with it because right now the police are you know, busy doing other things, I get that. And I also understand, so I get the growing fear because even when the NYPD was in full force, right, going back to like last September through January, you had basically a pogrom happen against Jews in Brooklyn. 
And I'm going to call it that. That's what I, I loved when Barry Weiss from the New York Times called it that because that's what it was. And so, of course, I feel like there's going to be more fear amongst the Jewish community if they feel like the police are too preoccupied with something else and that there are people who would take advantage and attack them. And I got to stress, you know, when it came to what happened in, in Brooklyn, when I call it a pogrom, people might be, oh, she's exaggerating. Like, come on, let's not go that far. You know, there were attacks almost every single week against Jews. No, most people weren't hearing about them, but we within the Jewish community, you know, we get those alerts every time something happens. And it was weekly that there were attacks against Jews. And then there were, I mean, one of the things that, again, I'm gonna, I'm gonna repeat Barry Weiss. She mentioned that during one of the high holidays, a Jewish woman had her, her, her wig, right? Women, Jewish women, especially in that area, they cover their hair predominantly with wigs. And cause that's part of the tradition. And some, a woman had her wig pulled off of her head, ripped off of her head as she was walking home. Now, you probably didn't hear about that. I didn't even hear about that until Barry Weiss brought it up. But I, she made a correlation and she said, what would have happened if it had been a Muslim woman and her hijab had been ripped off of her head? I can't even fathom what the rioting could have looked like if that had happened. And so I think also the reason why Jews tend to be more fearful is because when this stuff does happen to us, you don't see an outcry until it's really violent, right? It's like the, the random beating of a Jew on the street, nobody really cares. Only pe people only really started to wake up when you had the shooting in Jersey City, and then you had the stabbing attack with the machete during the holiday of Hanukkah and Muncie. Once those two violent attacks, they're all violent attacks, but yeah. significantly more violent attacks happened, that's when people woke up. So I understand, I understand that there's going to be fear within the Jewish community because when there is unrest, unfortunately, we tend to also be targets. And we have to rely on the police to protect us. And right now, the conversation is, you know, defund the police. Yeah. yeah. And when you have people like, I think it's a Talib Rashid. Is that right? Is that how you say it? Rashida Tlaib. Rashida. Yeah. Okay, Tlaib. the other way around. I don't know how to pronounce her last name. And, uh, Rashida, yeah. Ilhan Omar and AOC. These kinds of people sort of becoming faces of some of these movements. Obviously, their rhetoric is going to stoke the flames of the rhetoric, which has already been used by these movements um yeah obviously I mean, it's not going to help the situation at all but no you know the sad thing that i saw from jews and and probably one of the best arguments i've ever heard for you know keeping guns on the streets in america was a jewish friend of mine who said you know what charlotte i'll give you my one argument when they come for me i'm gonna have my gun to protect me and it was like whoa i had this moment of like i never thought about it that way but one thing that we do know of Nazi Germany was one of the first things that they did was they took all the guns away from citizens. That by the time they got as extreme as they were, nobody had a gun anymore, which also made it that no one could defend themselves from their own government. Mm. In this case, we're obviously not talking about defending ourselves from our own government, but it's basically saying like, well, if the police aren't going to protect me, I'm going to have another form of protection. And as someone who is very much an advocate of gun control, not necessarily taking getting rid of everyone's guns, but gun control and registration and training and all this stuff, um, that was one of those moments where I was like, "Whoa!" From a, and and that is to a certain extent we have to understand that's part of Jewish mentality of you know yeah. how do we protect ourselves and God forbid things go bad and the government really does turn on us, like how will we be able to protect ourselves? Yeah, we were talking about this the other day, and I said the whole issue of guns. For someone in England, or at least for us, it's like it's a whole other world. Like, we don't even think about it. I don't. If I lived in America, I don't think I would even want a gun. And then that 
this whole subject came up about them saying, well, let's start defunding police. And, and then it went from defunding to like full on just dismantling entire police forces. we in Minneapolis voted and so much so you can't even veto it to start dismantling the police force. And I said to, uh, in our conversation, I was like, flipping it. If I lived in Minneapolis, I would either be leaving or I'd be getting a gun. If I haven't even got a police force to come and help me out. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I don't, I have to, to be honest, and I think we all need to be able to do this. I am very ignorant of this notion of defunding the police and what that means. Because I can't imagine that they mean like, let's get rid of any enforcement of any kind. Like there's just, that can't, that can't be what they're saying. I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt that that can't be, but I, but I don't know enough. I don't know enough about the cry to defund police and what that means. Does that mean defund and reorganize? Does that mean create a new, you know, institution that would be there for enforcement purposes. I don't know. I don't know enough about it, but I do know that if I don't know enough about it, then the average person doesn't know enough about it. And when they hear defund the police, that scares them and that gets them to say, okay, I'm going to go get a gun. <laughs> and that is what's happening. You do see that rhetoric happening. And by the way, even if that's not what people are thinking, it would be in the, in the interest of the NRA and gun, gun activists to say, yeah, go get guns guys. Like this is the way. I don't know if that's gonna help us. It might make it way worse. I, it's it's so hard to know. And look, I think this is a major moment. I think it's a major moment in American history. I think we are. This is 1968. We have to acknowledge like the significance of this time, and that major changes can happen the same way that major changes happened in 1968. After you know there was legislation that was passed very soon after the incredible tumultuous year that was 1968, and all of the civil rights protests and everything that was going on. So this is a moment we're going, I, I genuinely think we're going to see real change. I just hope that it is in the right direction. I hope that it's not, you know, my biggest fear is one of my, one of my strong frustrations and the hard thing for me to deal with is reverse racism. And, you know, I, I very much believe like we, again, we should judge people equally. I don't think that we should look in the past and then say that we should punish people today for what happened in the past or even in what's going on currently. So I saw images, for example, in North Carolina of white people washing the feet of black people out of submission to them. Yeah. And it really just, why? And why as a black person would you want that? With all due respect, why? You know, it, 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 it doesn't make sense to me someone who was once subjugated to then subjugate somebody else. Mm. Or make somebody feel that type of subjugation or that type or that type of submission that yeah. you would feel to somebody like a master. And and I so there are things where I'm like, that's gone too far. Kneeling, I, I thought that was beautiful. All the images of the police officers who just said, you know what, we're gonna take a knee. And then you know, that to me is is beautiful. That's not like that's all of us taking a knee together, right? That's a unifying force. Whereas you making me less than you because of the color of my skin is you doing exactly to me what unfortunately white people did to you. And so I think we also need to be able to be strong enough to speak out against reverse racism. Yeah, that people yeah, go ahead. Trying, to, trying to solve unjust, unjust situation by creating another unjust situation to deal, to, yeah. to make amends for the previous unjust. Of course, in 40 years, this unjust situation will be unjust again. And, we, and so the cycle continues. Exactly. And if I could bring it back to Israel, you know, I constantly hear the cry, right? From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. 
And you hear it as like this justice cry for the Palestinians. And I literally have to respond and say, so your solution is to, to provide Palestinians with self-determination is to then strip me of my right as a Jew to self-determination. How is that not hypocrisy at its absolute finest? And I always say that. I say that to Zionists and I say that to a Palestinian activists. I, I will always say to them, you know, as a Zionist, understand that you are advocating for the idea, the value of self-determination. Therefore, it is really hip hypocritical of you to then, on the exact same foot, deny somebody else their right to self-determination. Yeah. And, and so it's, and I would say the same thing to, again, Palestinian activists, like you're doing the same thing in reverse, right? So instead it's, it's, we have to stop and we have to zoom out and we have to say, okay, if we both have a right to self-determination then we have, and that's our values as Zionists, then we have to figure out a way to solve this that would grant the Palestinian self-determination as well. And that I think is something that I find an incredible amount of cognitive dissonance within Israel of that notion. I had an argument this week, an argument, a, you know, a, I don't know, random. I was a conversation on, you know, Facebook Messenger. And I reached out to a former, a former student of mine who is definitely on the right side of the spectrum and doesn't believe in Palestinian statehood. And he just kept telling me, like, well, they don't want a state. They don't want a state. And I, and I, I struggle. You know, that's their justification. Well, they don't want a country. This is something that Westerners have convinced them of. Meanwhile, with all due respect, like until I hear that rhetoric coming out of Mahmoud Abbas and the Palestinian Authority, you, we just, you know, just today, in, in the last 24 hours, they've said that, you know, if Israel moves forward with their plans for, you know, applying sovereignty to the West Bank, that they are going to declare statehood. So I'm sitting here going, how can you tell me that they don't want a state? And that's how like you get, you kind of like, move away from that cognitive dissonance or trying to not be a hypocrite when they're talking about declaring independence and they declared independence. I mean, 1988, they declared independence. Nobody recognized it, but they did. And so that kind of cognitive dissonance, I really, and that hypocrisy, I really struggle with. And that goes back to being intersectional, right? Like Israelis can talk about human rights for Israelis and how, you know, we have the right to live and have the right to live freely. And yet sometimes they have a blind spot when it comes to the Palestinians and them also having those rights. You know, and so I, I always just try to say, like, if you think it's right for you, it's probably right for other people, too. And if you're denying it to other people, then we have a problem. Yeah. Right. And so it's, it's just sad. It's sad that we can't take a step back and say, I've suffered and therefore I don't want other people to suffer and I'm going to fight against. And I think that's always been the Jewish cry. If I can just point out, you know, we constantly get yelled at, like, you guys, you know, suffered in the Holocaust and now look at what you're doing to the Palestinians. I think that's a disgusting correlate. Like, that's just a disgusting analogy. Nothing that what we are doing to the Palestinians is anything similar to what the Nazis did to us. And also, let's be very clear about something. Jews were never terrorists against the Nazi regime. They never blew themselves up on, you know, on German buses. And so to draw that relationship is just disgusting. It, it really gives the Palestinians a free pass and ignores the terrorism that they, not all of them, but that some of them have participated in that has led Israel to needing the security that it needs. But totally lost my train of thought. Hold on, I'll get back to it. Um, but in general, when talking about, um, oh, I totally lost my train of thought. Hold on, where was I going? The comparison of Israel. Oh, the Jews, if you look after the Holocaust, you know, especially American Jews, when it came to the civil rights movement, we really saw, we, you know, there was this, this complete uh, um, identification with the fight 
within the civil rights movement, you know, we, we have been suffering discrimination. We've just, we've suffered this, not the same thing, but you know, lynchings, that word also means a lot to me as a Jew, just as much as it means, not maybe just as much, but you know, the same way that it would trigger a black person when they hear that word lynching. I think of the lynching of the two soldiers in Ramallah in 2000, in, in late 2000. And so we've stood alongside them alongside you know the black movement and black people for so long we have you know rabbi heschel walking alongside martin luther king holding the torah you know there's also a lot of things that i think people don't know you know we talk about the freedom riders and we talk about the white people who were on the bus alongside the black people and the freedom riders and most people don't realize that a lot of those white people were actually not white they were jewish they were white passing but they were jewish and you know we talk about mississippi burning and there were you know three civil rights activists who were murdered in mississippi one of them was black the other two were jewish and so to me, that's the right way forward. You know, and I also, I had another conversation with a colleague of mine and I was saying, you know, we can help so much standing alongside and, 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 and contributing with what we've learned in fighting against anti-Semitism to help in the fight against racism. And that's where this unifying, that's where we should unify, is in how can we help that movement using the knowledge that we have in our own fight. Yeah. And that's where I think intersectionality comes into play in such a powerful way that we can learn from each other and learn how to take the right steps and how to organize properly to make real change. And I just um, somebody said something to me about social media this last week. And this is someone who's, who is a Zionist, supportive of Israel, the whole thing. And it, it quite alarmed me because she said, I hope with all these protests going on, that if it came to the Holocaust, we would stand up in the same way. And I was like, it's the time to stand up now. You don't wait, don't you realize that anti-Semitism is here right now? And this was someone who I would have thought was more, more informed. I mean, my reply was, this is alive and active. This is a moment you, you you need to stand up now. But I thought if one person says it, you've probably got other people thinking it too. I'm trying to understand. She said, I would hope that Jews or that other people that like the world would rally around. Yes. If it was like, if we were, if we were seeing something similar to the Holocaust happening now, that the same amount of people would rally around Jewish lives. Yeah. And that's what she was saying. And I'm, I'm thinking that's too late. You're saying you don't wait for the crisis. No, you, you stand you up. You fight before now. To, to prevent the crisis. Right. right. I mean, I think we, so there's a few issues there, right? One is, okay, well, with that in mind, then shouldn't you be out protesting with those people, right? Because yeah. we all need to be protesting injustices. I mean, it always reminds me of the famous poem that came out of the Holocaust that I think every Jew has been taught at some point yeah. in their lives, which was, you know, the famous, they came for the communists, but I wasn't a communist, so I didn't yeah. say anything. Then they came for the, you know, whatever it is, and then they came for the Jews, and I didn't say anything because I wasn't Jewish, and then they came for me, and there was no one there yes. to speak up for me, Yeah. right? The notion that we need to, we need to stand against injustice, and we need to stand against bigotry and discrimination, mm -hmm. regardless of who it's happening against, because if it's happening against one group, it can so easily then happen against you. Mm -hmm. And I think as Jews, we tend to very oftentimes make this cry because Jew, Jews tend to be the first <laughs> in, in a lot of, historically, you saw it start with the Jews, but it didn't end with the Jews. 
Um, so yeah, I don't really understand that message. And I, I think what, what we learned really from the Holocaust as, as a historian, what I learned more than anything else is heed the early warning signs, you know, like, you know, Hitler stood up well before this all happened and said, like, we're going to kill the Jews. I mean, he didn't, you know, and in Mein Kampf, he wrote what his intentions were. And, you know, there's a brilliant man, his book's right here, The Prime Minister, Yehuda Avner, uh, in blessed memory, um, passed away a few years ago, but he, he once gave a speech for us at Stand With Us. He brought me to tears. And by the way, if you, I would t highly recommend looking this up. It's on the Stand With Us YouTube channel. Um, you can Google Yehuda Avner and Stand With Us. And at the end, he, he spoke for like an hour and a half. At the end, he was a speechwriter and he pulled out this like, we were like, do you have any final remarks? And he like pulled out this speech from his pocket. And he starts to read it off. And he had these like 10 commandments, the new 10 commandments for the Jewish people. And one of them was, if somebody tells you that he's going to kill you, believe him. Like, don't, don't take it lightly um, and stand up and speak out and fight against it as soon as it happens, because you never, we now know how bad it can get. And so I think for us now, the Holocaust became the cautionary tale that this is what we now need to learn from to know that if we start to see this type of rhetoric against any group of people within a society, it doesn't matter if it's Jews, it, if any minority group within society, that, that it is up to all of us to speak out against it because we now see how bad it can get, you know? And, and it's that, that's the key. That's really, I think, a big, a big piece of the puzzle. Yeah, I, I had a whole line of things that I wanted to go into, which was about nationalism. I'm starting to learn with my mentor about nationalism and kind of how, how against nationalism people are today. And it came up because the Nazis really ruined nationalism. The Nazis made nationalism this really nasty thing. And here I am as a Zionist, meaning that I'm such a nationalist. And I think about how we can like retake back nationalism as a good thing, as a unifying factor, as something that brings people together. Uh, unfortunately, it has also been perverted today the same way that the Nazis did by something like white nationalism, which is not a thing. Um, white people aren't a nation. <laughs> we don't, you know, there's nothing about us that makes us one people except for the fact that we have similar pigmentation. Um, but anyway, that's a whole nother train of thought that I was, that I've been, I've been learning a lot about it because I think that's the new, it's, it's a new broader battle that we're facing of nationalism versus, well, <laughs> uh, bigger institutions in the world that, that then kind of run things like the EU and other, and other entities, which if funny in the book that I'm reading, he dubs it imperialism, which I think the people who are anti-nationalism would not say that they're imperialists, but they need to realize that a lot of what they're dabbling is in is imperialism. Um, and maybe we need to get back to the country and, and, and how we unify around the country and the values of a country. And I think what's happening in America is the values themselves are being questioned, hmm. um, which is which is important, I think. Um, and maybe they can reestablish what the actual values are. When we say equality for all, we really mean it. You know what I mean? Things like that that could unify people. But unfortunately, I feel like we're going the other direction. Sorry, total tangent. No, that's no, good. That's good. Um, maybe uh, we were one of the subjects we were possibly going to cover was the annexing of the West Bank. But let's save that for part three. Um, uh, <laughs> And you know, I, 
it's probably better that we save it for part three because I think a lot is going to be flushed out in the next few weeks. Yeah. Um, yeah. In terms of it, like we have this like hard deadline put by BB of July 1st, but we also have, you know, people within the government saying, eh, maybe not, hold on, hold like, so I think actually in the next few weeks, more and more of that will be flushed out that I will even be able to talk about it with a lot more authority yeah. um, with, with the more information that's going to be available to us in the next few weeks. So I'll ask one more question then uh, about a figure who I think sits on the crossroads of a whole lot of things that we've talked about. And uh, especially here in England, and he's become, he, he has re-entered our news uh, dramatically, <laughs> who uh, has come up now because of racism. He fought anti-Semitism. <laughs> he beat back Hitler. Um, oh, is Winston God. Churchill. And so uh, in England, the protests spread over here, ended up being uh, vandalizing things, a number of different figures, but I want to focus on him. Other ones, this probably isn't the best choice of phrase, but other issues are more black and white. It's, it's kind of clear. Winston Churchill, um, obviously the target in him saying he's a racist, let's tear the statue down, Antifa written all over it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Maybe this world would have been better if we hadn't had Churchill to beat Hitler and <laughs> Hitler just took over everywhere with his uh, very principled view on, on life and people and all that kind of stuff. So where do you stand on what, what are your thoughts on honoring someone because of what he did? And yet, um, you know, all of, all of us in previous generations, our grandparents, our great grandparents, they will have thought differently from the generation we're in now. So do yeah. we do we tear up their legacies? Do we not honor them for the, the good? So yeah, what are your thoughts on, on this situation? So happy that you brought this up, by the way. I'm I'm I and me and I wish you guys could see our faces right now because as he was starting his question, me and Daphne were like, what is he talking about? Like who is he talking about? <laughs> And you have to, I love that you asked this question. First of all, I am an absolute fan of Churchill, okay? I, I absolutely love the man and what he stood for in his time. Whoa, I just bit my tongue. In his time. And I think that's key. You know, I, you can't judge history by what's going on today. You can't use modern day concepts to go back and then say, well, these people were wrong. They would be wrong if they lived today, probably, but they weren't necessarily wrong in their time. You know, I wish also people could have seen my facial reaction when you said, oh, it would have been better had he not defeated <laughs> Nazi Germany and Hitler. Because as a Jew, when I saw that, I have to tell you, I've seen a lot going on. And obviously George Floyd was the worst thing that I've seen in the last few weeks. But the other thing that really hit me hard was seeing that, seeing what happened with Churchill's monument. Right. You know, I've been there, I've stood in front of it. I've posed happily. I think you guys took the picture of me standing in front of it where I was actually imitating him. Right? So. I was you guys who took me to that, to that monument for the first time in my life. Yeah. And it just broke my heart Yeah. because it showed me that people today are incapable of analyzing history properly. And realizing that times change and things change. So, you know, 150 years ago, nationalism was something that was idealized because we were living in an imperialist world and so many people were suffering under imperialism and their solution was nationalism. And, and so, 
meanwhile, though, at the same time, we were living in an imperial world and Churchill was part of that imperial world. But, you know, judge the man by his character. And, and not that to, in the time that he was living in, you know, it's even when I think about it, and I know this might be messed up, but, you know, I look at my grandmother. My grandmother, you know, she grew up in the Bronx. She was a Jew in the Bronx. And so her, her perspective of Black people and Hispanic people is not a good one. And you would outright call it racist. And I always felt like in America, we kind of give a pass to the older generation because unfortunately, that was just the horrible environment that they lived in. Now, to still be racist today and not have learned anything is a problem. But then again, we can also always go back to Aristotle, who like said, like, the older you get, the harder it is to change your, 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 your perspective. You've experienced things and it's hard. We have to be able to look back at history and look in the times and judge people by based on the conditions that they were living in and the times that they were living in. Uh, did they did they act you know in a virtuous way? Did they act in the right way? Churchill, for better or for worse, he defeated an entity that if we had not defeated, we would have seen a world full of I don't I don't even tyranny of of inequality. You know, the Nazi Germans were about a a superior race where everyone else would be inferior to them. And that's what Churchill fought against. And I gotta say, as a Jew, Churchill also adamantly stood against anti-Semitism. You know, you saw the battle between him and Chamberlain. Chamberlain, who was, let's just call him out, was anti-Semitic and said anti-Semitic things throughout his existence. Whereas Churchill was the man who stood up against him saying no. And, and really advocating for Jewish self-determination and for freedom for the Jewish people. So. People need to learn history, I think, is the key here, you know, and not just and not just look at like a snippet of somebody's life and then try to look at it using 2020, you know, eyes and, and, and then judge that person. Here's my thing. And I, I'll, I'll really kind of I have a big issue with like anachronisms. I have a big issue with taking an idea that has now developed and fully evolved that exists today and then applying it back in history and then judging people based on an idea that has evolved only in our generation. How dare you? That, that, that knowledge, unfortunately, wasn't available to them. That, that idea wasn't present in their, in their existence. And now you're going to judge them for not thinking of it themselves or not knowing it when it didn't exist? How dare you? Now, here's my, here's my thing. Why do I study history? Because I want to understand history so that I can make the future better. Not so that I can look back on the past and sully the name of all of these people who in their time were actually really stand-up individuals. We have to be able to say, this is our history. Now, based on the history, let's, make, let's create a better future. We can look back and say that racism is wrong and is crazy. But let's be honest, in Churchill's time, there were like genetic studies that were going out saying that Black people were inferior. That was the knowledge that he had during his day, you know? Uh, homosexuality today, we have so many studies now, so many things that have been done that have changed the way that we think about it. This information wasn't available during these people's lives. So how dare you? And it, it, again, I'm, again, I'm so glad you brought this up because as a historian, I just rail against this stuff. How dare you? Take history, learn it, learn from it, learn to not repeat it. But don't you dare go back and judge people based on the knowledge that we currently have that they never had. That's messed up. 
And so to Sully, someone like Churchill, who if I swear to God, we'd all be speaking German right now if it wasn't for him. If, if some mean, of us would even be here. <laughs> yeah, I, again, the Jewish people, God forbid, what would have happened had Churchill not rallied the Americans to say, we gotta go. I mean, this is amazing, the timing, you know, here we are four days after, you know, the, the, the anniversary of D-Day. What would have happened if D-Day hadn't happened? We'd either all be speaking German or we'd all be speaking Russian and we'd be still be living under the Iron Curtain. Well, yeah. Charlotte, we have to understand that fights today are different than fights in the past. We can learn from those fights, but they're different because we have evolved as human beings. And the ideas, I mean, let's just, I'll just lay out one more thing. I think what I tend to always teach my younger students is I want them to understand that the world that they live in is remarkably different from the world that the vast majority of human beings lived in. Because post-World War II, we did a real, we say in Hebrew, we did a real like spiritual check and a check on our, 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 who we are and, and what we stand for. And this is where we developed terms like genocide and we started uh, actually, you know, holding people accountable for crimes against humanity and things like that. And a whole new system of laws of human rights and, you know, supporting people, of supporting people's rights and supporting people's sovereignty and protecting that sovereignty. All of those things came really dramatically after World War I. There were hints of it prior, but really post-World War II, we have this massive change. And there was really a new world order that young people today take for granted that you live in this world and realize that it's only been around for 75 years. And so you're judging people who existed before these things even happened. And that's not okay. So learn history and try to understand it because I guarantee you it will help you understand the world today. That's why I am, I said to my mentor, I want to understand this. I want to understand nationalism. I want, I want to understand the evolution of it. And I want to understand the decline of it after all of this and understand how that is relevant for us today and how we can learn from that to create a better future for ourselves and for our children. Well, I have, I have never seen you so fired up and I've seen you talk quite a lot. Because they went after Churchill. You know, go, Charlotte. Go, go, go. My man. I, I mean, I have literally, I'm looking at a book on my, on my coffee table that is Churchill quotes and everybody who comes into my house picks up this book and I'm like, yeah, read some, learn some. Like this man was brilliant. In his time, he was brilliant. So yeah. you, I'm fired up because they went after the one, uh, when I saw that, I lost it. I'm so glad you brought it up, Andrew. I'm so well, I've got some good news for you. Yeah. The next day, there were young people going up to that statue and washing it all off. Good. So those, that, that's our future is those people. Sorry. That's those kids are our future. Yeah. And uh, I've got a generation to generation quote for you. One of the things that we say is the ceiling of one generation should be the floor of the next generation. You start destroying the previous generation. We have no floor to stand on. We've no foundation. Yeah. yeah. I'll just throw that in. Yes. No, it's beautiful. And this is our history. Whether we like it or not, this is our, and, and so does it help us to go back and like tarnish it? No, take the good, discard the bad and move forward. That's yeah. the message. And, and so yeah, and you're right, it's building blocks. We all build on top, but we can discard the things we don't like. But you we, know? Also, yeah. we also say that if the ceiling of one generation is the floor is the next, we better build a high ceiling and we better build a secure, um, foundation for the next generation exactly so, and then sometimes yeah. that ceiling 
we realize a generation later is one that needs to be shattered yeah. by women, right? And, but we build on top of it. Yeah. That's the key, right? I love, I'm going to quote Jason Mraz in one of his songs. He says, may the best of your today be the worst of your tomorrow. Mm. That's it. Yeah, the, I guess the reality is if we carry on like that, we will tear this world apart brick by brick until there's nothing left. And that's what's happening. We are seeing that happen. And I, and I will tie it back and I will end with this message of, I work for an education organization and why I believe so much in education is because I genuinely believe if you don't know your past, you are doomed to repeat it and potentially make it worse. So learn a little bit, take the time. It, it's, you know, it, you don't have to become an expert in everything. And that's the beauty of, of having a lot of people in the world is that if we all took the time to really try to become an expert on one issue, like I have when it comes to Israel, which has expanded into politics and other things, but still that one issue, then we have experts in all these different fields and then we can default to those experts instead of trying to act like experts ourselves to post something on social media because we think we know, but really you don't. And then you have the expert who needs to come in and say, dude, you're wrong, like, sorry. You, we, we need to take more accountability yeah. for what we put out there, ensuring that what we put out there is accurate. And the only way to do that is by taking that extra step and checking it, check your facts, check your knowledge and do your due diligence to understand things better. We can treat each other or treat other people how you want to be treated. We don't have to agree, but we can still learn to honor and respect each other. Um, and so hopefully more and more people will start returning to things like that instead of just trying to tear everyone down, um, which seems to be the trend right now. Civil discourse, the believing that, you know, my opinion is not right. It's just right for me. And that somebody else, their opinion might be right for them. And it's not right for me to say that it's wrong. Again, unless you've gotten into this place of discrimination, of judging people again for who they, what they look like, or, or again, things that they don't choose versus the quality of their character we need to be able to have civil discourse again and realize that people can disagree with us and that doesn't make them evil or bad people. It just makes them different from me. And we need to embrace differences. That's the entire point. We are different, but we can all treat each other kindly and respectfully because we are part of one human people. Yeah. We need those differences as well. We do. And as a Zionist, I will say that very clearly. And as a Jew, I will say that very clearly because the last thing that I would want is for people to strip me of those identity characters. But we also need to be able to unite around the things that are, that, that are the same, right? About the fact that we are all human beings and we all value life, hopefully. So find the unifying factors and then appreciate the differences, I think is really important. Charlotte, thank you so much for coming, joining us again. We appreciate you and uh, we will book a date for round three and uh, we'll hit some of these other subjects like uh, the Amazing. West Bank. Amazing. Very exciting. It's always a pleasure. Always a pleasure to see you and talk to you. So looking forward to round three. <laughs> Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, Charlotte. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you for listening. If this impacted you, please rate us and subscribe on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify or another podcast platform.